You're listening to CinePunk, interactive discussions for film lovers. This episode, From Among the Dead. Um, I'm your host, Robert J.E. Simpson, and I'm joined as ever by my erstwhile colleagues, fountains of knowledge and opinions, of which you will hear plenty of both. On my left, somewhere in your ears, is, well, Dr. Rachel Kelly. I wait for you to introduce me so you can say the doctor bit, because it's rude if I say it. (laughs) Just love hearing it, don't you? Yeah. And playing with the sound desk, uh, pondering in the corner. Not only is he my uh, better-looking brother, which you'll get the benefit of, uh, but he's also our, our, our sometimes unacknowledged third member of the team, Ben Simpson. Hello. Ben Simpson DR, as in drummer. Start <laughs> 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 using that. GDR? TDR? What, great drummer? Um, oh, I don't know. I'll have to think of something clever. So um, this uh, episode, we are taking a look at the classic... Uh, Alfred Hitchcock film Vertigo which is something we've been wanting to do for quite a while um, yeah yeah so slightly nervous about it why are you nervous about this well because you know it's not like anybody's ever taken a look at Vertigo or Hitchcock's work before no well we've done Vertigo we've done Hitchcock on the show before um, we had a look uh, a little while ago at some of the problems about Hitchcock in terms of his, his sort of the representation of women and sexuality and violence and everything else um, but Vertigo is a film which has increased in popularity since its release in 1958 it is uh, now regarded by the BFI as the best film of all time which is quite a boast and it's taken over uh, in 2012 from the Orson Welles film Citizen Kane Unfairly, I feel I would definitely disagree with that statement That it's the best film ever That it's the best film ever, yeah Yeah Having watched it (laughs) (laughs) Ooh, dissenting opinion already Um, Certainly it's a film that my relationship with has changed a lot over the last, what, 20 years Same, yeah um, I first saw this back in the 1990s when the BBC did a massive uh, rerun of, of Hitchcock films. I remember liking it. I remember being interested in it. Um, and Jimmy Stewart's always very, very watchable, but it, it didn't grab me properly. And we did it again when I was a student as an undergrad. You film. find him very watchable? Yeah, I find him watchable. Jimmy Stewart, I just love. Oh, I love Jimmy Stewart so right. much. I love him. I really I didn't love him. like him. He was in that It's a Wonderful Life. Yes. Yeah. I didn't like it either, and I just... Ben and I are no longer speaking. I just get very irritated by him. Um, Uh, I'm not Ben's friend anymore. We'll we'll talk a bit about Jimmy Stewart in a bit, um, because I think he's he's, he's an important person to talk about within the context of this film as well. Yeah, Um, for all sorts of reasons. (laughs) But I think for me, it is a film that actually, as time has gone on, now I don't necessarily side with the BFI and say that this is the best film that's ever been made, but I think as a film... Um, it certainly didn't deserve to be sort of sidelined in the 50s, which it, it kind of was. Yeah. Um, as time has gone on and you rewatch this film, I think this film merits rewatching. The more and more I see it, the more and more I get out of it. I mean, I can see why it was sidelined and I can see why it's a film that um, gains uh, approbation as it's, you know, as time goes by. I mean, uh, you know, if you were a Hitchcock fan back in the 1950s, you knew what you were getting when you went to see a Hitchcock film. Uh, you go and see Vertigo and say, what the hell is that? I mean, for a start, the plot makes no sense. It's, I mean, I actually teach this as plot holes are sometimes fine when I'm teaching um, narrative theory. 
because it's it. I mean, it's, it's more full of more holes than the sixth sense, and that's saying something. It's so, one of those things that you kind of just have to go okay and let it go and just run with it. Um, because the whole is the whole glorious mess is wonderful, but it is a mess of a narrative. So just briefly, if you haven't seen Vertigo, and I imagine most of you out there will have seen it at some point, the plot in a nutshell is you Jimmy Stewart plays this police officer. It's the film opens up on a chase sequence across the rooftops of San Francisco. Plot um, point one. How did he get down from the roof? I don't know. When we last see him as he's running across the roof, he, he has he, he must fallen. He must have some grip on him. He is That's all I'm going to holding say. on for dear life, and one of his colleagues falls to his death. Um, this sets off Jimmy onto basically, I suppose it's a form of PTSD. Yeah. He ends up being retired from the police force and uh, ends up uh, basically living in his little flat uh, on Lombard Street in San Francisco, um, minding his own business. He's got a friend who cares about him, Midge, uh, played by Barbara Belgettis. Um, and she pops over fairly regularly. She has a, a little bit of a crush on him. It's Barbara Bagaddison. Well, isn't they it? were yes, Barbara ch- Bagaddison. childhood sweethearts, were yeah. they not? This is what seems in, to be alluded to. Engaged. But, although the age gap for, between those two yes. is quite significant. <laughs> the age gap between Jimmy Stewart and everybody in this film is quite significant. So I've never quite worked that out. But anyway. Was that not the case in uh, It's yeah, a Wonderful it. Life as well? Uh, I think it probably was. Less so. It's Wonderful Life is, what, 13 years before? So he wasn't, he was 49 in, in Vertigo, so that would have made him 36. 36. Yeah, God, I had to really work that out. Well done. So you got thank that you. degree. <laughs> a PhD, thank you. It's not in maths. Um, so yes, so uh, so he's got this, like, this character and then he uh, encounters an old friend um, played by a Brit. So how they were friends. Oh knows? God, again, plot point one, Such two, a... three, seven, whatever. Um, who asks him to investigate his wife, um, who is apparently, well, possessed by the spirit of a former deceased relative. And if you haven't seen the film, buckle up, it only gets weirder from here. He then proceeds to follow her all around uh, San Francisco and befriends her uh, following a, uh, an incident with the... Uh, San Francisco Bay, to put it mildly. We'll talk An about incident. That. We'll talk about that shortly. Um, and, and and then she kills herself. By, yeah, jumping off a thing. She, she kills herself. And uh, then sometime later, we pick up on the story again, and he encounters a uh, woman who looks uncannily like Madeline in his head. Again, I take issue with this, but carry on. And uh, he proceeds to follow her around. This time in a less kind of uh, amenable way. Uh, and he starts to mould her into the uh, figure of his deceased former infatuation. Uh, ultimately, she also dies. And he's left in ruins. Spoiler alert. It's kind of <laughs> Although, I mean, what, the film is 61 years old now, so it's fair enough. <laughs> Let's just, just put a little edit in at the start of the programme. Spoilers follow. Yeah. If you don't want to know the plot line of Vertigo, do not listen any further. Or better still, watch the film and then come back and listen to it. How, how old is this movie? 1959. It's, so it's 61. Right. If yeah. it's 61 years old, yeah. there's no way. <laughs> <laughs> you would think that plot spoilers would not be so much of an issue, but... I get really annoyed when someone spoils a plot for a film that I haven't seen. I don't Me care too. how old it is. Yeah. Me too. But it's their fault for not watching it. <laughs> it's been around for 61 years. You hadn't seen it until fairly yeah. recently. I, uh, well, yeah, it wouldn't if be I, my I, cup of tea. If I told you how it ended, would you have still wanted to watch it? No. <clears throat> I, to be fair, I don't think he would have wanted to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was very trippy. 
That's yes. all I'm going to say. Ooh. Okay. Um, let's talk first of all about Jimmy Stewart because I feel Ben has stuff to say about Jimmy Stewart. And me too. Ben and I are going to have a massive fight. <laughs> Jimmy Stewart. I just, uh, I think his attitude towards women, like even in It's a Wonderful Life, it was kind of the same thing. You know, I'm going to force myself upon you. Mm-hmm. That's just the whole vibe I got from from him. I don't know if that's valid. It's what you see. So it's I what I it, see. So yeah, I think that's so. valid. If you see it, it's valid. Yeah. Whether I mean, it's I think meant in, to be or not. No, I think in Vertigo, um, that's absolutely. I mean, that's that's key. That's critical. The the whole sort of re- uh, representation of the relationship that he has with JD. Um, it's supposed to be unhealthy. It's supposed to be unsafe. It's supposed to make you feel uncomfortable. I mean, even from the mores of the day, that kind of obsessive. Um, pursuit and manipulation and moulding of someone could not possibly have been seen as healthy and it's we're, we're supposed to see it as unhealthy um, the bit where, oh I remember I saw this film for the first time as a student um, in a, a module on psychoanalysis and film which was really interesting um, it really was, like genuinely it was one of the favourite modules that I did as part of my degree um, and the bit where um, he's 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 talking to Judy and he's asking her to to change her appearance and you know she doesn't do one thing that he wants her to do and he goes oh come on Judy it can't matter to you. No, that's not it. Nothing like it. But you said grey, sir. Now look, I just want an ordinary simple grey suit. But I, I like that one, Scotty. No, no, it's not right. The gentleman seems to know what he wants. All right, we'll find it. Scotty, what are you doing? I'm trying to buy you a suit. But, but I love the second one she wore. And this one, it's, it's beautiful. No, no, they're none of them right. Oh, I think I know the suit you mean. We had it some time ago. Let me go and see. We may still have that model. Thank you. You're looking for the suit that she wore for me. You want me to be dressed like her? Judy, I just want you to look nice. I know the kind of a suit that'll look well on you. No, I won't do it. Judy. Judy, it can't make that much difference to you. I just want to see what you No, I don't want any clothes. I don't want anything. I want to get out of here. Judy, do this for me. And all the women in the class burst out laughing. Because, yeah, no, of course, I mean, we, we literally only put anything on ourselves for for other people. It's, it's you know, it doesn't matter at all to us how we look or choice over our appearance or our agency about our appearance. It doesn't matter at all to us. Naturally, why would we be concerned? I mean, that, this the, the confidence with which he completely erases any of her desire to control her appearance and those fundamental parts of a person's identity is horrible. It's horrible. I think that's why that's a really interesting casting for me because that's not his star persona at all, James Stewart. Uh, Jimmy Stewart's kind of the nice guy. Um, and whilst It's a Wonderful Life is definitely complicated, I mean, he's still kind of the nice guy. He's just going through a rough period. But this one, you've got a film where he sort of starts off nice and then becomes so absolutely infatuated and obsessed mm-hmm. that he deteriorates into something that's a shell of a man, really. Yeah. Or ultimately, maybe he's the ultimate man because he is trying to take that absolute control but still struggling with it. I don't. I think the film's pretty clear about this. I mean, Hitchcock in particular is someone who problematic relationship with women and how women are allowed to think of themselves. Um, I, I think he's clear on this as well. That this is not healthy. This is not the action of a healthy man. This is a man who has been broken 
um, and, and is now behaving in a way that's really quite pathological. It's, it's, it's certainly deeply, deeply disturbing. I mean, Judy herself is, is someone who, as a character, almost has no identity because when we are introduced to her, she is already playing the part, spoilers, mm. of somebody Madeline. Yeah. She is being somebody else who is she already... Is being somebody else. Yeah. I mean, it's, which is interesting, I suppose, in terms of this is a film, so this is full of actors, and actors do, that's what they spend their entire career doing, is mm-hmm. playing the part of another person. Yeah. Um, so whether you could read this as some sort of commentary on actors themselves, um, then she is struggling not only with having had to play somebody else, but she's had to go through their demise. Again, you know, at the end of a, a run of plays or the end of a film, you, you sort of lose the part. And then there's the revival of the part again with the second half, where she is playing a version of herself, that is then subsumed into Jimmy Stewart's, into Scotty's idea of of this girl that no longer exists. Yeah. Um, I never existed. I mean, that, that, well, well, Madeline existed, but Judy playing Madeline was was never, I mean, that was always Judy's construction of Madeline. Scotty'd never met Madeline, so he had no baseline to compare it to. I mean, Judy was free to create Madeline and the most alluring way she could conceive that was going to appeal to Scotty with no way of knowing how close that was to Madeline. So, so yeah, I mean, this, she's creating a character from the very beginning. What I think is, I just, I love Kim Novak's performance in this. I just think it's amazing. Um, you like, what do you think of her? Um, yeah, I thought she was, she was good. Yeah. I have often struggled with her when we see her as Judy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's terrible because I feel like I'm being like Jimmy Stewart I'm going like I don't like the way you look at this no. point I don't like the way that you carry yourself this for me is not what I want to see and then I see this other version of me thinking yep that that's you just, just be like that so I sort of for a little bit kind of empathise with Jimmy Stewart's desire to bring out what he sees as being the best in her <laughs> and I know oh, that saying dear. this at all is very very <laughs> problematic but if you allow yourself during a film to get completely absorbed into that world of the film sometimes you can kind of tap into that possible psychology I can sort of understand what it is that he's doing well I, yeah I, I do too I mean Hitchcock's created Madeline in that sort of perfect ice ice blonde um, Hitchcockian mm. heroine mould he's creating his perfect woman um, and I mean, I, I agree with you. I mean, Judy has made some questionable decisions in terms of her appearance uh, that, that, you know, she just, she suits the blonde hair better. Mm-hmm. She suits the style of dress as Madeline better. Um, and I think Hitchcock's queuing us in. I mean, that's, she wears expensive clothing as Madeline. Mm. Her clothes as Judy are cheap. She's a, a working woman supporting herself. Um, she's not, she hasn't got any kind of money behind her. So the decisions she's made as Judy are based on financial necessity, whereas the decisions um, that are, are Madeline, that create Madeline, are, you know, they're, they're fantasy. They're somebody, they're a rich man's fantasy. Mm. Um, and she's being created in that very specific way. But what I love is even, even when the final transformation happens and she steps out of the, the bathroom with her hair swept up in that Madeline chignon, um, she's wearing Madeline's grey suit. She still has that kind of diffidence in her eyes. The, the way she holds her mouth is different. Madeline's jaw is set in a very kind of aloof, 
I am so much better than you kind of um, you know, that, that very wealthy sort of um, the world belongs to me but Judy has a kind of a scowl, a habitual scowl or, or something that just kind of has much less confidence about it and that's the expression that she's wearing even as Madeline when she's Judy pretending to be Madeline. And obviously, I mean, she created that Madeline character herself in response to uh, Arsehole Husband's instructions. But so she she sort of created that. She could bring that out if she wanted to, but she doesn't want to. So Judy's still there. I love that. And it's so, I mean, that's the sort of thing that you'd... You don't necessarily pick that up on the first viewing. This is the, the when you talk about a film rewarding repeated viewing you don't necessarily see that on the first viewing but the more you watch it the more you go Kim Novak you are just incredible in this film it's a, it's a film I think that uh, I mean you sort of tap on it there this repeated viewing this this you start noticing the details it's also the plot holes you, it's once you start obsessing about Vertigo which is ultimately a film about obsession that this is a film about a man who is obsessed with an image of a person yeah um an idealised image of a person of fantasy. And, and an image that she... Obviously her whole agency... Now she's clearly given instructions to lure uh, Scotty into this position. But the whole way she is trying to, to entice his view. She's trying to encourage him to watch her, to observe her. And then to interact. You know, these are sort of films that, that led us into unhealthy kind of constructions of early relationships as we decide this is the way to pick a, to pick a woman is to sort of stalk her around the city for a little bit and then kind of just make her acquaintance. Women, mm. women don't like that. We, we don't. <laughs> we just don't like that. <laughs> so do you want to talk about the suicide thing then? I don't want to talk about the suicide Because we don't, we don't tend to talk about this when we talk about Vertigo. No. Um, it's certainly not what gets... Um, I mean, the, the obsession and the stylistic decisions and, uh, oh, the vertical zoom. Let's not talk about the vertical zoom. No, we'll, we'll skip that. But, I, but okay. I mean, this, this is a film that is about death. Uh, as much as it's about obsession, this is a film that is about death. And that as well comes from the original novel from uh, from Led, D'Entre des Morts. Um, so with the, uh, the original story set in Paris and it's during the war. So it's a, a kind of complicated, interesting period. Uh, and much of the narrative follows the same beats, the same patterns. This obsession with this girl that he's asked to go and follow and then him falling in love with her and the manipulation, her disappearing and dying and then getting him back again. But his anger is far more pronounced in the original novel. Um, I don't know if you know about the novel much. Bits and pieces. Ultimately, he kills her. He kills ah. her. He kills her in a rage at the end. Right. Um, he is so fixated and frustrated and upset and a broken man that he just lashes out with anger. Jimmy Stewart's Star Text would not go that extra mile, clearly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. this film, probably, if, if, if we were watching this film and it ended in her being killed by him deliberately, and it's hinted at because that last chase up the, the, the stairs into the tower, again, I mean, he's dragging her, he is throwing her about, he is being quite physical. Yeah. This was as far as I could get, but you went on. You remember? The necklace, Madeline. That was a slip. I remembered the necklace. Let me go! Now we're going up the tower, Madeline. You can't, you're afraid! Now we'll see. We'll see. This is my second chance. 
but you knew that day that I wouldn't be able to follow But ultimately, it's not him that, that, that tosses her off the end. It's, this it's herself. <laughs> yeah. But, like, why, why would you run off a tower? Well, I don't think she means to. It's the appearance of the nun that seems to freak her out. Yeah, you see, and I, I think I agree with you there, Ben, because I don't think that ending makes a lot of sense. Well, if you have yeah. to have it explained to you, and everybody I know has had to have that explained to them, so what happened at the end? Why did she jump? Well, no, she didn't jump. The nun appeared and she thought it was the ghost of Carlotta. Um, okay, mm-hmm. fine. But none of that was explained. It, it certainly is. It, there's a shock anyway. And I mean, they're in a very, very highly um, taught environment. And there is this element of revisiting so, I mean, the whole second half of that film is about revisiting the first half, about going through those same beats, going through those same places. Um, and Jimmy Stewart almost having to, Scotty having to re-shock himself into behaving like an normal person because this is a man who couldn't climb up a, pair of, a set of steps mm-hmm. in his own flat, um, let alone try and go all the way up. Um, couldn't even stand on a stool. Couldn't mm-hmm. stand on a stool. And I mean, I've been to Lombard Street, his little house, it's a ground floor flat. It is not a case of this man is up in the top of a high rise. He's literally ground floor. There is nothing for him to be kind of freaking out over. Um, but that's how it is. Um, so it is a film about death. It is about that 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 kind of dealing with it and about uh, ghosts and impressions. I mean, ultimately, she is meant to be reincarnated by the ghost of Carlotta. Mm-hmm. And then we sort of, the second half of the film is entirely about the ghost of the memory of Madeline that mm-hmm. doesn't exist. But it is punctuated by a suicide at the end. And that's a, a, an accidental suicide. Actually, I think that the the suicide at, at, at Fort Point is deliberate. Um I don't think that she actually expects... I'm, I'm not completely aware... I'm not completely sure how much that she is aware that he is following her at that stage. I think she probably knows that he's... Oh, hang on, sorry, the first act. I thought we were talking about... No, no, let's, sorry. Let's, let's, so let's talk about the first act. Yeah. So basically, before he... The, the moment that actually brings the two of them together, he's following her all around the place. And I'm not entirely sure how much she is aware of his presence all the time. I dare say that she's been told by shitty husband that she is going to be stopped. Um, I don't think she'd have jumped into the water unless she was convinced. I mean, that's all part of the plan, surely, that he rescues her. Do you think that was the plan? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah, yeah, quite convinced that was part of the plan. Doesn't Jimmy Stewart actually reference that, that, you know, she she turned and looked before she jumped in or something? Um, What are your thoughts on this, Ben? Because you seem to not agree. Do you think she did it on purpose or not? Like, did she expect to be rescued or did she just jump? I see you could take it that way like um, she just jumped Mm. and didn't expect to be saved Mm. Uh, knowing that he wouldn't jump in or something like that Mm. right he would just let her drown obviously you know thinking that that maybe you could think about like the height of the water you know would be enough to you know Mm -hmm. make him not jump in because I'm sure there was a it's a bit of a jump that he had to do to get into the water. Yeah. Maybe it was the knowing that it was just water and not concrete. <laughs> well, let's that, pick part of this. Part of the film is, the, the whole film is set in San Francisco. It's a real space and most of the film we are seeing the real spaces of San Francisco. Sometimes reproduced in a studio. As but Hitchcock sp- preferred, of course. But generally speaking, they're very closely based on the original spots. Mm-hmm. Now, the spot where she chooses to jump into the river, uh, into the San Francisco Bay, it's just underneath the Golden Gate Bridge. This is the bridge which had the most suicides in the world at that point. 
on a reg, you know, every single year. Yeah. It's a notorious suicide spot. It is the place that people go to kill themselves. Yeah. That is not an accident that she chooses that space. No, I agree. And yeah. I, I think it goes further than that. I think for me, watching it um, and seeing her struggle, taking being, you know, is she subsumed in the second half of the film by this sort of forcing onto multiple other people's identities on top of her? I think that's already become a problem in the first half of the film. I think that she is so completely enwrapped in that and I think that she wants out. I don't think that that's uh, accidental. I think that she deliberately throws herself into the bay in order to kill herself. And I think that actually the husband is surprised. I don't think I think that for him was a shock as well whenever they're having that conversation on the phone. See, I, I don't know. I just completely disagree here. Hello? Scotty, what happened? She's not home yet. No, she's all right. She's still here. I'll bring her home soon. What happened? She went into the bay. Hello? Hello? Did she hurt herself? No, she's going to be in fine shape. There's nothing to worry about, but she doesn't know. Now, do you understand that? She doesn't know what happened. Scotty, Madeline is 26. Carlotta Valdez committed suicide when she was 26. Just hold on a minute, Gavin. Um, I, I mean that 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 whole jumping into the the sea just below um, Golden Gate Bridge functions so neatly as a meet cute for the two of them. It's what ultimately um, sort of gets her back to his apartment, and it's what ends up being the difference between him following her and them falling in love, yeah. which is all part of the plan. I mean, a shitty husband needs to know that when um, fake Madeline runs up the stairs at uh, Mission Point. Um, Scotty's going to try but not be able to follow her um, because otherwise none of this extraordinarily convoluted plan comes off. But it's such a risk to do that at that point as well. I mean, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm taking the fictional scenario where it absolutely has to hit those plot points in order to make it happen. Yes. But also with the realities of that actual physical space, we're tossing yourself into San Francisco. But she's a good Bay, swimmer. So. We find out she's a good swimmer. Mm. She was. She was never going to be in any significant danger. Um, and yeah, no, I, I, we have to establish fake Madeline is definitely suicidal for Scotty to buy the fact that she'll throw herself off the top of the tower. Um, we we have to we have to establish a pattern yeah. um, of of attempted suicide there. So if I, she actually does kill herself, well, you know that's I suppose yeah, shitty husband can't stop her from um, backing out of the plan that way, but. Um, for the the fake suicide to come off as realistic, then Scotty has to believe that she wants to kill herself. Hmm. I think it comes back as well to reference in the novel. I mean, in the novel, she throws herself into the sand, um, but there is a suggestion of a, a sort of a second or third attempt. I mean, this is uh, something that happens right. more than once that there okay. is an attempt. You could take that bit, you know, whenever they are driving through the forest, she goes into the forest, she goes into that weird space out thing, yeah. get me out of here, and then they're driving along, and then there's the, you know, the the sea, and she goes running off uh-huh. towards the sea, maybe say that that might have been a, and then that's whenever he grabs her and kisses her for the first time. There's the way to explain it, you see. I'm mad, and that would explain it, wouldn't it? Madeline. 
not mad. I'm not mad. I don't want to die. There's someone within me, and she says I must die. Oh, Scotty, don't let me go. I'm here. I've got you. I'm so afraid. Very definitely um, a bit of a bit of obfuscation for us as viewers watching this, and I think yeah, part thank of it is good God, it's ridiculous this film for that. <laughs> but but I think that there's a couple of things going on. I think that one is that there's the plan to yeah. lure Scotty into a certain position, which is the it's the first half of the film. There's yeah. a plot plot to, to manipulate him and to facilitate this this basically insurance fraud um, and a murder. Because we forget like the actual Madeline is killed at oh, that I, I don't forget. The women are very badly treated in this film. Very badly indeed. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that she is a completely complicit player in what's going on. I think that she is struggling the whole way trying yes. to assert her identity. She does struggle a lot in the second half of the film trying to keep some sort of element of being Judy. And she was never happy with the deception that was meant. She was never happy with the fact that um, she was facilitating the murder of another woman. No. I mean, clearly that was really, really uh, disturbing to her. Um, this is... I I mean, she just strikes me as this, as as a woman who is a bit desperate. She's struggling to keep her head above water. Well, she does write a confessional. Yeah, I mean, she's she's a de- fundamentally decent person. So, okay. there, so there is clearly a struggle there that says because I don't agree was, with what's happened. Yeah, yeah. I don't, but she was gonna she was gonna run, mm-hmm. and then she went. Actually, you know, maybe because I do love this guy, maybe I'll we'll try and get it to work, and he'll accept me for who I am, not mm-hmm. not who you think I was, not yeah. who mm. you think I yeah. Yeah, it's complicated. I mean, look, this is one of those points where I, I'm going to throw it into our listeners and, and say, you know, if anyone has thoughts on this, I'd love to hear them because I find it hard to work out what's what. And I think that multiple levels of duplicity are part of the thing that merits rewatching because mm-hmm. you're always trying to work out, okay, what is what is actually the real character's agenda? And then what's the stuff that they're manipulating, that they're lying about, that they're trying to craft in a way to make this be something else? The obsession itself is is fairly, I think it's fairly intimidating, it's fairly scary, it's fairly disconcerting when you see this. That goes from an initial kind of police private investigator survey of somebody to actually literally stalking. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I, again, I mean, I just, I, I suppose that, that strikes me as probably some of the reason why it's not really very well received at the time as well, is because people have an idea of who Jimmy Stewart is. And this this man who engages in this borderline criminal behaviour, um, pursuing a, a woman who is, to all intents and purposes, supposedly oblivious to his pursuit, and then um, sort of... Uh, succumbs to that level of obsession to the point where he's physically remodeling a woman in a dead woman's image I mean that's not the Jimmy Stewart that everybody loves from from the 1940s 1950s I think yeah so yeah I can see why you go along you've you've got a standard idea of what a Hitchcock film is it's a fairly straightforward whodunit thriller type affair Um, there's there's a very Hitchcockian style that's expected and people know that they love that there's Jimmy Stewart oh Hitchcock works with Jimmy Stewart all the time Let's go and see that. And then it's this. Like, okay, so for a start, it's two different films. <laughs> Back 
effectively with a big chunk cut out of the middle um, smushed together um, it's it's employing these kind of psychedelic trippy um, sort of inner turmoil mechanisms it's and it's it's unpleasant it's that I mean it, it feels deeply unpleasant watching him manipulate Judy who is somebody who's obviously very vulnerable mm-hmm. And she feels very vulnerable. I mean, not notwithstanding what she's done, which is assist a man to to murder his wife for insurance money. Um, but why did why did she do that in the first place? Was it just for money? I think or? she's skint. I think, I think she's it, desperately trying to. She's running away from something. Yeah. I'm sure of that. And she's just has. You know, she's just trying to. You know, there's a suggestion that she was Gavin Esler's mistress as well. Mm-hmm. I don't know where the evidence is for that, but then apparently he casts her aside. So, I mean, she just falls in love with bad guys. I don't necessarily think that Scotty's a bad guy, but I think he's a man who... Um, there is something about the story that he has told about her that changes the way that he views that because there is this deep concern for somebody who is psychologically not with it. Mm-hmm. Um but he does kind of get wrapped up in this sort of ghostly story as well and this this sort of haunting and this this sort of possession mm-hmm. and i think because he's so wrapped up in that possession as well to begin with that he starts to think that this is a real thing mm-hmm. that when he does encounter her later on as judy all that stuff just seems completely viable and here we have it again there's no reason to think this isn't also her because she previously was somebody else mm. I don't know. It's 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 weird. It's uncomfortable. It's it's deeply disturbing, and that's also underlined by Bernard Herrmann's wonderful yeah. score. Um, that just sort of, for me, just it's, it's so haunting. Yeah. And it's it's a very romantic score, which I think is, it's fundamental to guiding you to reading it in a certain way in the first half, um, and also then quite jarring as well. Yeah, yeah. It's in the second half, yeah. I think it's 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 increasingly unpleasant. Yeah. It's always been one that sort of creeps into my my sleep. I occasionally go to bed listening to that score. Well, Um, no wonder it creeps into your sleep. (laughs) I just find it... it, It's that dreamlike state Mm -hmm. that the whole film was designed to put us into. I I think that that there's a point where we have to question reality right from the off. Mm -hmm. Um, And part of... There there is certain theorists out there who would suggest that actually everything from that point where Jimmy Stewart's hanging on for dear life to the end of the film is just in Jimmy Stewart's head. It's in Scotty's head. None of that stuff is real. Um, he is an unreliable narrator because he can't trust his own judgment. Mm. And because he's in the dark for most of it. Um, he doesn't know what he doesn't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how do you feel about that? Is it sort of idea that the whole film is just in his head? So, right. Ah, that's, a, in, that's interesting. This has suddenly made the film more interesting for you. <laughs> I think that's narratively more satisfying. Yeah. Well, is that satisfying? Is that not just a cop out? Oh, though, totally. Trying to think think of it like that. It you know, yes, it would be. I don't know. I don't. I don't think it'd be any more satisfying learning that that whole thing was made up in his head that he no. was just sitting in an armchair. Yeah, or or I mean, you know, the, the point is, there's there's a couple of different jumping on points. I mean, the whole film could be it could be in his head, <clears throat> or the second half of the film could be in his head. Like, that's him trying to rationalise what is ultimately, a, you know, a situation that has traumatised him because it's a, it's two traumas that we have. He's catatonic in the midsection. Mm. He's, you know, it, it could very easily be follow on. I mean, as much as I hate, you know, that, that kind of, and it was all a dream um, kind of narrative resolution, at the same time, um, the, I, the reason I say it's more satisfying is purely because 
uh, none of what happens um, in the first half makes much sense um, if that's what somebody is really actually doing to try and off his wife. There are so many more simple um, and plausible <laughs> and reliable ways to off your wife, for the love of God. Why would you construct a murder mystery around your wife? You're going trying to go, oh, honest, Gov, I didn't kill her. Um, I mean, yes, you want to make it look like a suicide. Fair enough. There are many more ways. A drug or drink or something. What? Why are you doing a possession narrative? Nobody's going to buy that, and yet they do. I, I think that's the reason why they've done that is because of the clout that maybe Scotty had with maybe. the police force. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, well, if he was investigating this and he he thought that she was actually legitimately being possessed and drove herself to suicide. I mean, obviously, that helps. Yeah, you know, back up, back up that story. Well, but that's totally what's happening because you see, there is the inquest that they hold, and his. They kind of point out that he's a little bit unreliable because he can no longer do his job properly anyway because he's scared to hide so yeah. much shit. Yeah, um, checking, but checking. because he's a police officer, because he has been, that does give it an authenticity in terms of giving evidence. So mm-hmm. the, the you know there is a deliberate manipulation with that. Although he does get ribbed quite shockingly, the guilt that is layered on him by that investigation is ridiculous and there's no way that should be accessible in the court. Well, no, obviously. He doesn't doesn't talk. Why, that's the other thing, why is that court being held in the same place that she committed? That is baffling in in a convent, basically, you know, in in an abbey. I I, I don't know. That makes no sense. Every decision this narrative makes is baffling if you sit back and look at it for a minute. Like, I picked up on that. I was like, wait, that's the same place that that she... Why? Why is the court being held here? You know, it just—it—it's not a proper coroner's court. That's not where this no, stuff happens. No, absolutely not. No. Um, it, it's very, 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 very. It's weird very as strange. all hell. Um, what about the space? I mean, this is something I—I I, I want to talk about this because this is something I care a lot about. But the space of this film, um, I think, feels quite different from most Hitchcock's. Um, it does feel like a very real thing and the city for me is as much a character as anything yeah. else which is a really interesting decision for Hitchcock to make I mean he's got you know the birds I suppose is very much uh, geared around the location of Bodega Bay but he's about 50 miles north of San Francisco <laughs> he films as little of it on location as he possibly can of course yeah. um, can you think of any other films where the the city in which it's set I mean Frenzy. location Fren- Frenzy's I haven't seen Frenzy. Fren- Frenzy's all set in London. It's all about the, the London that he grew up in. It's kind right. of his return home. It's very much part of that. Well, you see, that makes sense. But San Francisco doesn't have any particular connotations for Hitch, does it? Well, again, this is why I kind of... Uh, he seemed to like San Francisco Bay. There's a really good book about um, sort of the, the San Francisco locations that he used. He also used it in... Um, oh, gosh. Oma Jill Cotton. Shadow of a Doubt. So Shadow of a Doubt also shot in the Bay Area. Um and parts of family plot as well. Okay. When the bay, the bay was somewhere that he liked, um, and obviously the birds is sort of in that space as well. Uh, but for him, I think, I, I mean, I think I've already sort of said it. I think it's that importance of the the Golden Gate Bridge as a suicide point mm-hmm. and a focal point within the film. But also, you've got lots of. It's a very strange city. It's it's full of sort of these hills and these these ups and downs. But narratively, this film is up and down all over the place. But it means that you don't have these very straight landscapes. When you look out, everything is. Oh, is that's sort of all really over the place. interesting. You're, yeah, because I mean, I've been to San Francisco and I know exactly what you're talking about. And it is, it's a, it's a city that's slightly askew. Yeah. 
geographically um, and, and you know, lots of things about San Francisco are not quite the way one's used to. I mean, the weather in San Francisco is a bit topsy-turvy. It has and, a wonderful microclimate, like yeah. it's just in its own little bubble, all of its own. Mark, Mark Twain, apparently it's apocryphal, but Mark Twain is credited as saying the coldest winter I ever spent was summer in San Francisco. <laughs> um, it's, it's just bizarre and it's like foggy and cold in the summer and then there's like a little Indian summer in the, the autumn time and then winter's generally not that bad. And yeah. So it is, it's a little bit upside down and back to front it's it's entirely its own space there's nowhere really like it in the world i think you know and there's, there's all these little i mean obviously you've got the, the sort of the, the conveyances and things the trams and what have it um and some nice little phallic points as well and hitchcock is oh, all like about the phalluses he loves his freudian imagery you know um <laughs> there's that reference where they're sitting in the flat and uh, they're pointing out the coit tower behind them yeah how did you find me you know how did oh i just looked up that landmark yeah. there that and massive actually, dick in the sky that's yeah. how i got you well, I'll get my mail. Would you like to have a cup of coffee? No, no thank you. Oh, I couldn't mail it. I, I didn't know your address. But I had a landmark. I remembered Coit Tower. Let me straight to you. Well, it's the first time I've been grateful for Coit Tower. Quite honestly, I was there earlier. I was there last year and going round. That it's, it's true. You find the Coit Tower and you go, okay, right. So he was living over that way. Um, and where the flat is that he lives is at the bottom of Lombard Street, which is the basically regarded as the twistiest road in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll seen it on films. Is that the one? That it's the snakes. Yeah, that's that. the one. Yeah. But you don't actually see the snaky bit of no, Lombard he, he Street, lives which is really it's a really weird decision to use that street and then not show the thing that that street is famous for. I love that he is about. 20, 50 yards away, his house is 20, 50 yards away from where the end of that snake is. So he's both on the twistiest road ever, which when you consider the narrative seems like a very, very important symbolic gesture, but also he's on the bit where it sort of starts to straighten out again. It's perfectly pitched. In, in many, many ways. But unless you know San Francisco, you don't know he's on the windy street. No, I had no idea until I went there <laughs> and it was like, it's there. It's fantastic. Um, but the whole film is just full of that sort of rich imagery. Um, I'm going to post something up on our website as well. I shot some video when I was there, just looking around all the, the vertigo locations because it was just um, totally kind of... Um, you're literally walking in the space of the film yeah. and every corner you go around, I kind of feel like Jimmy Stewart expecting to see Madeline walking down the street. Mm-hmm. That would not surprise me had I seen somebody. Is that hotel still there? The, um, the one that she stays in, yeah. Miss Judy? Yeah. yeah. It's now called the Hotel Vertigo. Oh, right. Uh, they played the Vertigo film in a loop in the front the whole way uh, whole way through and they've changed the signing on the outside um, but that's a real hotel and you can see her actual hotel bedroom yeah. is there um, the same way the, the little uh, church that they go to where Madeline's grave is her grave was not a real grave but the church is a real church Yeah, it's a, a little proper space and walking into that you know looking around I spent an hour in that churchyard which is not a big churchyard just soaking up the atmosphere of this film I mean in terms of obsession for me, like that, that Jimmy shared obsession with the space and the places and the characters and everything else feels very, very real, which is a really strange admission to make on this show. <laughs> that a film that I wasn't that keen on watching 20 years ago has actually taken to the point where I will travel halfway around the world just to kind of soak up its atmosphere yeah. and feel that you're part of it. Um, it's not the reason I went to San Francisco, although I'd only just seen it when I went to San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um 
and there, you know, there were other films that I was following to San Francisco. In fact, I was basically following my parents' um, 1960s uh, mixtapes to San Francisco. All the hippies were singing about it on my parents' um, cassettes in the car, which is why I wanted to go there. Um, but, I mean, I can see why the city um, and, and the connection the city has to the film um, is enduring. I just don't think if I were going I mean it wouldn't be it wouldn't be my fa- even my favorite Hitchcock film let mm-hmm. alone what I would consider the best I think it's far too flawed mm-hmm. it's it's an enjoyable watch um, and yes one does get something more from watching it every single time but one also gets an increasing sense of the absurdity of it er, more and more as you watch it so I just I mean it, it certainly wouldn't sit for me as the greatest film of all time um not even the greatest hitch film of all time so and I mean as you know me I am absolutely passionate about Citizen Kane so sod off Vertigo you're not a better film than that and I sincerely hope that when that poll is taken again in 2 years time that magnificent um, testament to the genius of of the greatest filmmaker that's ever lived is restored to its rightful place. But, you know, if Vertigo wants to hang around in the top ten, I'm not going to complain. I just, I would rather see Hitchcock's other work um, get acknowledged there than Vertigo. Ben, any final thoughts? Yeah, it's definitely not the the greatest movie of all time. Definitely not. Oh, no, that's Vertigo fingered. No, it's not that either. (laughs) I'm Um, going to just pass out here. (laughs) Um, Yeah. It's, it's an alright watch you know it gets in the two hours or whatever you know if you've got nothing better to do <laughs> <laughs> watch all the plot holes and yeah you know. I, I why would anybody do that why would anybody do that oh right just to get you to the next plot point I see there is a reason we have Ben on this show yeah. like <laughs> Ben you and I are in complete agreement here I think on this matter yeah. so for me I mean whilst this is not my, my favourite Hitchcock film by any stretch of the imagination that's Rope which is another Jimmy Stewart oh, short film it's an amazing film we are going to do that on the show this year right. Ben okay. so you've got one more Jimmy Stewart coming your way great does he uh, not, not, it's, yeah. it's, 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 it's a it's different. Does Can we also so do rear no window? Women, no women to abuse in this one, no. We'll force force <laughs> themselves upon. Yeah. Actually, not really. No. No. I'm, Men. I'm, 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 I'm gonna. I might actually have to sit down and watch this one with him myself. Right. The, the key word here would be homoerotic subtext. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so for me, while it's not my favourite Hitchcock film, uh, Benny Stretch the Imagination, it is a film that that has, and I, and I certainly don't think it's the best film that's ever been made. That's Man with the Movie Camera, um, or but, Citizen Kane. Eh, um, but for me, it is uh, certainly a film that has grown on me as time has gone on. I have. Uh, I now feel like I'm much more absorbed in its little space and its world and that again has enriched it for me um, it is a fascinating film it is one that merits multiple discussions and this is sort of an introduction to it I mean we could come back to this show uh, back to this film in you know six months or a year well we could literally talk about nothing but this film for the rest of our lives I think we'd not run out of stuff to say we'll do a, do a six week podcast just on Vertigo let's not though um, I, but think, it, I think we might run out of stuff to say but it, it, it is one of those films that, that challenge accepted Ben <laughs> <laughs> it definitely um, merits a kind of a watch. And if you've not seen it, and even if you do know the plot points and everything else, I still think it's worth having a look at. Um, that's us at the end of the show for this week. Um, my thanks as ever to Dr. K. Thank you. Thanks to Ben again um, for contributions, changing our minds about things and, and for fiddling with the knobs whilst we're talking.
That's what he does. Yeah, um, my job. It's a job. Uh, if you've enjoyed the podcast, um, subscribe. Why not? Uh, if you haven't already, leave us a little review on iTunes. We could do with some of those. That'd be nice to know what you guys actually think. Um, you can get in touch with us. Uh, we are on social media on Twitter and Facebook as CinePunked. You'll find us on Instagram as CinePunked Film. Uh, we've got live events and stuff happening all the time, and uh, we always love chatting to you guys as well. Uh, we're back in your ears very, very soon. If you haven't already, you can have a look through our past episodes. There, you'll find them all on our website, www.cinepunked.com. Until the next time, goodbye. Bye. Cheerio.